This is episode four of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Dina Brooks about exercise in both healthy and chronic populations. Thank you for meeting us today. Can we start by having you briefly introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Dina Brooks. I'm a physiotherapist here in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto, and I hold the Canada Research Chair in Rehabilitation and Lung Disease. And what area do you...? Um, my two main areas is lung disease and cardiovascular disease, ma- mainly stroke patients in the cardiovascular area. And my interest is in exercise and fitness in these population. And so today we're going to be talking about the exercise and fitness part of it. So let's start with why should you exercise and what are the benefits of exercise? There are clear benefits to exercise, um, both on if you want to live longer and if you want to live a better life. There's clear evidence that if you increase your VO2, which is a measure of your fitness, that uh, it is correlated with longevity, which means that you can live for much longer. There's even clear, if you increase it by so much, it'll increase your life expectancy by two to five years. In addition to that, um, exercising is good in terms of improving your risk for heart disease, uh, lung disease, uh, cancer, a bunch of chronic diseases that exist there. Exercise is definitely a preventative approach to all of these chronic diseases. And what about the effects of exercise on your mood or mental health? There's clear studies in recent years that exercise improves mood. It also decreases rates of depression and anxiety. And kind of related to mental health, but not directly mental health, um, there's recent evidence that exercise also improves your cognitive ability. So basically, exercise makes you smarter. And are there specific types of exercise that need to be done to get these benefits? A lot of the uh, emphasis has been on aerobic exercise. That's uh, exercise that raises your heart rate to a certain level. And the aerobic exercise is the good way to increase your VO2 peak. However, in more recent years, in probably the last two to five years, studies have shown that uh, resistance training, uh, weight training, also has a very positive impact. And in fact, weight training has more recently been shown to be correlated to cognitive ability. So it improves your ability to think, your memory, and so on. So that's more actually weight training than aerobic training that improves that. And you talked about exercise to raise your heart rate. So does raising your heart rate from other means such as stress or caffeine provide the same benefits? We wish. (laughs) Not quite. Um, So it's not just the raising of the the heart rate that is important when you exercise. Heart rate is one indicator and it's often used as an indicator of intensity. However, it's also increasing your breathing, it's moving the joints, it's changing how big or small your vessels are in your body. All of those are beneficial and caffeine or some of the other drugs will not do that for you. So you do still need to exercise and move. And I think many people think because they exercise that it's okay for them to have some other unhealthy habits such as smoking or alcohol consumption, poor nutrition. Can exercise negate or lessen the effects of those? Um, It can't take away the negative effect of those. Um, There are some studies that have shown that if you're uh, a regular exerciser and a smoker, it's better for your health than being a non-exerciser and a smoker. 
but you still have a greater risk of cardiovascular and lung disease than if you didn't smoke. So exercise should not be an excuse to have bad habits. And the other way is that people think if they exercise, then they can eat whatever they want to eat, but um, nutrition is still an important factor to consider for your overall health. And a couple of years ago, you wrote in an article that stated that sitting is the new smoking. Would you like to talk about that? And now we all know that smoking is bad for your health, but there's more and more evidence that sitting for a long, prolonged period of time is also bad for your health. So it's bad for your heart, it's bad for your joints, it's bad for your posture, um, it's got all kinds of negative effects overall on the body. So just like we combated smoking by giving them exercise to go outside to smoke, no, we didn't, but by his <laughs> education, now it's important that we educate people that sitting for prolonged periods of time are not good for them and they have to find ways to do better with it. And many businesses are now switching to standing desks mm -hmm. instead. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's better than sitting. Standing desks are better than sitting, but um, they're not as good as walking. So in addition to standing tests, it's really important that we think every once in a while to get up and walk around, to make sure we stretch, make sure we take breaks at lunch and not just sit at our desks and eat and to get some exercise at least every hour. And for someone with a sedentary lifestyle, how much exercise is needed to offset that? Uh, it's the million dollar question <laughs> that everyone is asking. So uh, there are people who are looking is getting up from your chair every hour to exercise for two minutes by uh, marching on the spot. Is that enough to counter your sedentary lifestyle? And we don't know what is the minimum that we need to counteract our sedentary lifestyle. So it, the answer remains to be determined. There's definitely evidence that some kind of activity every hour is beneficial whether every two hours enough, whether every half an hour would be better, we're not sure yet. Are there a lot of research studies being done right now? <coughs> yeah, there's a lot of studies. We're actually doing a study basically in patients with lung disease where patients get to have their watch ring them every hour and they have to get up and march on the spot and, uh, to see if that's beneficial for them. So there's lots of studies going on. And does studies look at other variables such as nutrition in someone's lifestyle? Uh, they should. Sometimes we focus on the sedentary part and they forget uh, nutrition. I'm guilty of doing that in many of our studies. Uh, we should look at the whole package, but in addition, I guess exercise, regardless of nutrition, is beneficial. Um, then, of course, exercise with good uh, nutrition is even better. What is your opinion on health devices that monitor step counts and fitness mm -hmm. levels? It's an interesting question because I actually don't know if I have an opinion or not. I wear one, and I've only started wearing one for the last month. Uh, studies have shown that they can improve people's activity level uh, to a certain degree. However, some, people, uh, some other studies have also shown that people rely on them to use it as an excuse for poor nutrition, so that they look at their uh, step counts and say, oh, I'm over the 10,000 magic marker, then it, you know, I might as well just have this burger and, or these fries or have some uh, terrible food. So I don't think that we know definitely uh, if they're beneficial for changing behavior. I think they're great for monitoring physical activity and they have the potential to be a tool for anti-sedentary behavior. You mentioned that 10,000 steps a day is being that number that a mm -hmm. lot of people say you should hit. 
Where did that number come from? That's a great question. So there is some evidence that the 10,000 steps a day has positive effects, so there are a few studies. However, the 10,000 is being questioned of whether it's the appropriate number with people who have chronic diseases, and we know that 50% of Canadians have at least one chronic disease. So the new number that's being thrown around is 8,000 for people who have a chronic disease like lung disease or cardiovascular disease. But there is no evidence for the 8,000, although you could find some references of that is what people have reported walking is 8,000 in people who are relatively healthy with a chronic disease. Our patients at best get 4,000, between two and 4,000. Like, you know how little that is? That's pretty bad. That's like hardly getting up to the bathroom. And are there different recommendations based on age, or is it more so based on health? It's a, g a great question, too. The, there aren't recommendations based on age. However, this 8,000 is also being suggested as more appropriate for older adults. And so you were talking a little bit about people with chronic diseases. So what are the effects of bed rest or immobility in these types of populations? Mm -hmm. The effects of mobility are really terrible. I mean, we can see changes in muscles within 24 hours of being in bed. You can see cognitive changes. You can see changes in the range of motion and a decrease in their aerobic capacity within 48 hours. So they're really negative effects. Uh, there's hardly ever any indication for complete immobility unless the patient is, cannot move. Even in patients with the intensive care unit nowadays, they're trying to put them on bikes or get them up sitting or get them up standing or walking uh, to make sure that they are active even when they are critically ill. So unless you can't physically get out of bed, then you should be getting up and moving. Exactly. And you work a lot with COPD populations, so can you share the latest research in that area and the impact of exercise? So uh, in patients with chronic lung disease, generally whatever lung disease it is, exercise has been shown to improve their quality of life, to decrease the rate of hospitaliz hospitalization, and to generally be healthier. It also definitely improves their quality of life and makes them better to function at home in a better way, as well as they have a greater satisfaction with life. The one thing that we have never tested and has never been tested with chronic lung disease is whether exercise improves survival. And the main reason is that we can't do the study. Exercise has so many beneficial effects that taking it away from patients with chronic lung disease would never be accepted ethically, so we can never do the study to see if it improves survival. Uh, in the States, they really want to do that study because uh, in the States, they only get something funded, like rehab or exercise only get funded if it improves survival, but it's unlikely that such a study would ever happen. And it was believed that exercise was bad after sustaining a concussion, but now they're saying that that might not be the case. So there, are there any populations or groups of people where exercise might be dangerous? Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, not just concussion, I'm thinking in pa patients with pulmonary hypertension, patients with interstitial lung disease, it used to be that exercise could be uh, have a negative impact on them, and over time this has been negated. Um, there are still some population, and I'm thinking more about the cardiovascular realm, people who have uh, an aneurysm that's not well controlled, if they have some really unstable cardiovascular, if they have unstable angina, exercise is not a good idea. But there are very clear guidelines, and it is the minority of the cases rather than majority of the cases exercise is safe. But if you have a chronic disease, it's probably a good idea to check with a physician or any kind of condition to check with a physician or physiotherapist before you start.
And I know in chronic diseases and just exercise in general, there's a big focus on breathing properly. So is there a science to breathing properly and does that have an effect on the body? Um, the science is mostly uh, about how patients feel and uh, patients feel that if they do stomach breathing that it improves getting air in and they don't feel as short of breath. The same as with pursing your lips when you're breathing out. Individuals feel, probably all of us, if you're really short of breath, if you purse your lips, it feels better. There's a physiological rationale that breathing from the stomach would give you uh, greater, more air coming into your lungs so you have more oxygen. Um, and there is evidence that if you purse your lips when you're breathing out, it creates a back pressure into the lungs and it keeps your lungs open longer and you, you have better oxygenation. It's hard to measure in healthy individuals because our oxygen levels are already at 100%. In chronic lung disease patients, you will see a difference if you teach them breathing from the stomach or if you teach them uh, purse-lip breathing. And many patients state that if only they had a pill instead of having to exercise, mm -hmm. then that would help. Mm -hmm. Do you think there will ever be a replacement for exercise? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be great? I'd like to have that pill. <laughs> um, I don't see it in the near future, but then it's hard to know what the future will bring, maybe. And the biggest problem that many clinicians face is adherence to exercise programs. Mm -hmm. So what are some strategies that people and clinicians can use to implement exercise and make it part of someone's day? It is the biggest problem that we struggle with. Even patients with diseases as well as healthy people, even are healthy, I think, I can't remember what the stats are, but less than 40% of Canadians get enough exercise on a regular basis. And many people will start, so we all know the January warriors who go to the gym and then by February and March, they're no longer going. So adherence is a huge issue. There's some literature about different things that help. So one of the things that we know helps is reminders. So for our patients, calling them or having appointments with them to come in and asking them about their exercise improves exercise adherence. The other thing that helps is psychosocial support. So exercising in a group or having a buddy to exercise with uh, definitely helps with exercising. The third one that helps is setting goals. So uh, setting a goal of a, a public goal with you so not just a personal goal uh, is also another way of helping. And there is some evidence about these devices may be able to be helpful. The activity devices may be able to helpful with adherence as well. And do you have any advice on how people can get more exercise throughout the day if they're at a sedentary job? Yes, so there's um, lots of suggestions. I'm sure they've been thrown around, but maybe uh, getting off a subway stop earlier from your work, walking upstairs rather than taking the elevator, even for one floor or two floors, and then taking the elevator, taking breaks every hour, going out at lunch and going for a walk, trying to fit it in in, in every possible way that you can think of. And. Is there anything that you feel is currently lacking from literature that you hope will be explored in the future? Um, so the Canadian guidelines for exercise says that we should get 150 minutes of aerobic exercise. That's the exercise that increases our heart rate every week. And in addition to that, we should go and do weight exercises twice a week. And this is for the uh, adult population. I think that 150 minutes seems like a very arbitrary number. So I'd like to see a bit more research about is that general prescription of exercise appropriate for everybody? What are some of the factors we should consider 
who should be getting more, who should be getting less. Also, I kind of question whether twice a week of resistance exercise of weight training is sufficient with the latest evidence. And the last area that I think needs a lot of research is this high intensity exercise where instead of continuously running for 20 minutes, you sprint and then you walk or you do really, really, really hard exercise for a couple of minutes or for four minutes and then you rest and then four minutes and you rest. And there's a lot of evidence showing that this has the potential to be as effective if not more effective than continuous exercise. And is there any other interesting facts or things you'd like to share about this topic? I wanted to share some of our findings in uh, patients with stroke. So these are individuals with stroke who've had several months after their stroke, at least six months after stroke. And when we brought them in to do exercise with them, there was a lot of changes in their aerobic capacity and their strength, and we did aerobic and resistance training. But the part that was very surprising is the cognitive changes that we saw in the patients. So their memory, their recall, their ability to problem solve, the changes were probably the most pronounced out of all the changes, and that was quite surprising for us. So I think the future studies need to really look at cognitive ability and the impact of exercise on cognition. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.